Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is writer and philosopher Massimo Pigliucci. You know him from his books, How to Be a Stoic, and A Handbook for New Stoics, which provides 52 week-by-week lessons to help us apply timeless Stoic teachings to modern life. In this episode, we get to know about Massimo's passion for practical philosophy. We talk about the rise in popularity in Stoicism and why this ancient philosophy is still so accessible today. We get to hear his thoughts on Silicon Valley Stoicism, how to improve our judgment, and much more. If you like the podcast, be sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the episode. All right, Massimo, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. My pleasure. So for those who are a little less familiar with you, can you just give us a little bit about your background and your journey up to this point? Uh, Yes, I started my academic career as an evolutionary biologist, um, which I was for a number of years. Uh, And then at some point, you know, midlife crisis struck and I decided to do something different. So I went back to graduate school, I got my degree in philosophy. Now I am a professor of uh, philosophy of science at uh, the City College of New York, uh, uh, which is part of the CUNY system. Now, I too am a fan of evolutionary biology. What was the draw there? Well, I wanted to be a scientist since I can remember it. So I was a kid. And uh, once I got to middle school and high school later, uh, it seemed like biology and in particular the interactions between genes and environments was the, the thing that excited me the most. And that's what I devoted my career as a scientist to the, what it's called the nature-nurture problem. I love that. So really ancestral health in combination with ancient wisdom can provide one with peace of mind and peace of body. Ideally, yes. The problem is, of course, in the details because uh, we actually know very little about um, the early stages of human evolution. Uh, certainly, you know, we know a little bit about our, our ancestors' habits um, and, uh, you know, both behavioral habits and uh, sort of eating habits. But we don't know a lot of what they were doing and what they were thinking, that sort of stuff. So, so there's, uh, there's quite a bit of speculation in uh, in, But, you know, we do what we can. Yeah, does the same thing apply to ancient philosophers and the Stoics? A little less, simply because we have more uh, sources, written written sources, both by the Stoics themselves and by commentators on the Stoics. But yeah, uh, somebody has estimated that about 98 or 99 percent of everything the Stoics wrote is lost. So, you know, what we go by is the little that is left, which fortunately is a significant amount of material. But uh, that's one of the reasons why I never say things like, oh, the Stoics never said X, because we don't know <laughs> whether the Stoics never said X, since we lost 99% of what they actually wrote. Yeah, definitely. So tell us about your journey from skeptic to Stoic. Well, by skeptic, of course, um, uh, in this case, one doesn't mean the ancient philosophy, but what people mean in modern times is sort of what it's called sometimes scientific skepticism. Uh, my my first job as an academic was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and um, as an evolutionary biologist there, I immediately ran into uh, creationism, because it turns out that a lot of my students, and certainly a lot of uh, people living in town, were creationists, and so they looked at me in a rather strange way. Uh, that brought me into contact with the broader world and uh, bizarre world of pseudoscience and that's why I, I started uh, becoming active in that in that area I started organizing public events and giving talks and writing articles about the nature of science and skepticism more generally uh, 
the turn to stoicism came as a as part of so the above mentioned uh, midlife crisis, I suppose, uh, which wasn't terrible. I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna uh, try to make it into a sort of a, a particularly tragic thing. It's, it's just like you know, you get into your forties and you start thinking, okay, is this all there is to it? Um, also, I there was a particular year where I did go through uh, some personal turmoil, you know, a divorce, a new job, moving to a different city. My father died. All of those things happening in the span of a few months. That kind of you know, you pause and you say, hmm, I wonder if I could I could um, sort of approach things. Uh, differently. Um, by that time, I was already interested in, stu in studying philosophy in general, and I figured out that a promising venue for me to address sort of personal problems uh, was something called virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is this broad approach in, in moral philosophy, which goes back to uh, Socrates and Aristotle, and that uh, basically puts the emphasis on the development of the individual character. Uh, so the, the notion is you, you're going to try to become a better person by working on your character. Um, so I started, I, I started to study virtue ethics, and the first stop to, typically is in fact Aristotle. But Aristotle didn't really speak to me. He says a lot of interesting things, but it doesn't really give you a lot of advice. And also, he's a little bit of a um, a person that that is difficult actually to emulate for most of us uh, for a number of reasons. For for instance, he says that um, uh, the good life, the, what he called what the Greeks called the eudaimonic life, requires a number of things. Not not just working on your character uh, and trying to become a better person, but also, you know a little bit of wealth, a little bit of health, and a little bit of education, and even some good looks. So it's a little bit of an aristocratic view of of the good life, and so that didn't really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. The second stop was Epicurus, because uh, Epicureanism also is a type of virtue ethics, uh, and it's actually very interesting. Epicurus had a lot of interesting things to say. The, uh, his emphasis was on close relationships with your loved ones, with your families and friends. Um, but there is one major drawback, at least from my perspective, to Epicureanism, which is the goal of life for an Epicurean is what they call ataraxia, which is going through life, you know, things with a sort of mental, uh, you know, serenity, which is fine, except that uh, in order to achieve that, they um, taught that we should avoid all sorts of pain, both physical and mental pain, and a major source of pain, social and political involvement, which is why the Epicureans counseled to just stay away from politics and social uh, issues because they're, they're just going to make you mad and they're just going to make your life miserable. Now, they had a point, um, you know, <laughs> politics does make you mad. Um, but but I don't think a human being, at, at least not, not this particular human being, can actually flourish uh, without political and social involvement. We are social animals and I think that social uh, and political involvements are, are fundamental. So, so I was left kind of like in, in the limbo in, during that period saying, okay, virtue ethics is the right area, but Aristotle isn't going to do it, Epicurus isn't going to do it, and I didn't know much else about virtue ethics at that point. And then one day on Twitter, of all places, I saw this thing that says, uh, uh, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I thought, huh, what the hell is Stoic Week, and why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Now, I didn't remember much of the Stoics from my uh, studies in philosophy. For one thing, they're usually not studied in graduate, at the graduate level. 
um, uh, for some reason that it still escapes me. Um, I did take courses in philosophy in high school, but even there, they kind of skipped on the on the stories. I have read Marcus Aurelius on my own when I was younger. I knew about Seneca because I had actually translated in from Latin um, uh, in school, but but it, I never connected the two, and I certainly didn't know that you know much about the philosophy of Stoicism. So I said, well, let's try. So I signed up for Stoic Week, which is uh, an intensive week uh, that happens every year, usually in around October or early November, um, where you try to live like a Stoic. You, you read a little bit of uh, Stoic philosophy, you practice a certain number of exercises every day, and then at the end of the week you see you know, how that goes. Um, mm-hmm. And in my case, it went very well. <laughs> so that I said, oh, this is really interesting. It really clicks for me. And uh, so I committed to do it for a couple of extra months until the end of that year. And then uh, I committed to another year of practice. And now here we are, you know, five years later, still talking about it. Five years later, wow. So when you first picked up Stoicism, did you feel the same feeling that a lot of people do when they when they first get into it, which is like, wow, I've been practicing Sto- Stoicism all along without knowing it? Not exactly. Um, I mean, there were some things, several things that resonated with me immediately. But no, I wouldn't say that I'm a natural Stoic. Um, there, there are those people. You're you're right. Um, in my case, it's like I guess I was I've been a natural epic, uh, sorry a natural Aristotelian to some extent, um, uh, and which is not a good thing, as, as I said um, before. Uh, but what it did uh, to me, it was so especially reading Epictetus in particular, uh, which is the the Stoic philosopher that really resonated with me immediately. I mean, as soon as I opened up the uh, uh, the Enchiridion, which is the Epictetus handbook, uh, and then read these discourses, like, wow, where has this guy been for all my life? Because uh, it really struck uh, struck a chord. So I wouldn't say that I was a natural Stoic, but I certainly uh, something resonated with me immediately. And as soon as I started practicing, I saw that this was a far better way to go uh, than any other alternative um, that, that that I tried before. And I have to say, I have also tried Buddhism for a little bit. Um, that was interesting, but didn't speak to me, especially in terms of the language is foreign and, you know, and, you know, a little alien in terms of concepts. Um, and that's probably because of just my Western upbringing. Uh, and of course, I was brought up uh, Catholic, so I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with, you know, the, the Christian Western tradition, but that also didn't speak to me particularly. Mm-hmm. This book doesn't begin as so many books on Stoicism do with a long history of Stoicism. It gets right into the business <laughs> of helping us be better and happier. So for those interested, I recommend, you know, if, if you want more history, go pick up uh, Massimo's early, previous book, How to Be a Stoic, for a deeper dive into the yeah. history. So with this one, you've created sort of an engaging practical handbook for those who want to explore and achieve the strength of character and what they call equanimity. So these concepts and techniques are not meant to help one get ahead as in like the Silicon Valley sense, right? No, they don't. So first of all, I should uh, say that the book was co-written with my friend Greg Lopez and uh, it was an interesting collaboration because Greg, first of all, knows a lot about Stoicism and also about other uh, philosophies of life like Buddhism. In fact, he's a practicing Buddhist as well. Uh, but also he has a background in cognitive behavioral therapy and a lot of the exercises that we came up with uh, are directly inspired um, by the ancient Stoics. I mean, as you see, every every chapter starts out with a quote from one of the ancient Stoics. But the exercise itself, it's actually 
uh, usually laid out in a way very similar to cognitive, modern cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is uh, very empirically based, you know, so evidence-based kind of uh, psychotherapy, and it seems to work pretty well. Um, yeah, so in terms of how the, the, the book actually works, uh, the, uh, every exercise has a structure. It's the same structure throughout. It's 52 exercises. Um, so if you want to, you could actually practice for an entire year, um, uh, which, you know, lots of people actually doing. There is a, there is a Facebook group that is devoted to the practice um, based on, on the book. Uh, but you could also sample it. We, we, at the beginning of the book, we kind of uh, provide a cheat sheet uh, with, like, I think it's nine exercises that we suggest that, that people people yeah. try. Um, but the basic concept is that um, these are exercises in self-reflection uh, and in uh, about, you know, what is it you want to do in life and why do you want to do it? Uh, and is it a good thing that, <laughs> that you want to do? Uh, and these, you would think, are kind of basic questions that... Uh, people should ask themselves anyway, uh, and that they often don't. Uh, there is, in fact, some literature, uh, interesting literature about uh, you know, people that, that uh, come to the end of life, and um, uh, the literature is about you know what is it that these people think and, and what is it that they regret. And often uh, the things that they regret is not to have paid attention to things that turn out to be important and actually have spent a lot of time doing things that are not that important. And that's a crucial concept in stoicism you know you, you need to pay attention to what is important define you know the, clarify to your mind what is important which brings me to your actual question about uh you know silicon valley stoicism yeah this is definitely not about silicon valley stoicism yeah. um this is not a, a get rich uh quick kind of scheme thing um in fact i have to say i have pro a problem with silicon valley uh stoicism uh I don't think there is anything wrong with using a technique if it works for your own purposes. Um, you know, stoicism itself has been the, uh, the, the inspiration for cognitive behavioral therapy when it started back in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, but of course, cognitive behavioral therapy, it's not a philosophy of life. It's a therapy. Um, it's something that you do uh, for a short period of time if you have a specific problem. You know, if, if you have a... Uh, anxiety or uh, depression or whatever it is, you go to the therapist and the therapist seems to work on, uh, you know, works on that uh, using techniques that are largely inspired um, by the stoic uh, toolbox, but you're not doing stoicism, you're doing therapy, right? Mm -hmm. So the same way goes, you know, the same thing goes with, with Silicon Valley so-called stoicism. I mean, what these people are doing is they're, they're isolating some of the toolbox in the, in the stoic arsenal and they're using it for their own purposes um, which is to you know become successful entrepreneurs make money that sort of stuff and fine some of these tools do work you know for instance uh, the dichotomy of control which tells you that you should be paying attention to stuff that is under your control and and try to ignore or take as it comes stuff that it, that that you cannot control uh, that's obviously a very efficient way to go through life in general uh, regardless of what you want to do where the, the uh, Silicon Valley approach uh, is deficient, and I, I think seriously deficient, is that it ignores the most important part of the philosophy. That is, Stoicism isn't just, as a philosophy, Stoicism isn't just a collection of techniques. It is uh, a compass, a moral compass for, for navigating life. And one of the very first things that the Stoics tell you is that externals, including wealth, are, in, are irrelevant to your happiness. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so this generates right there an, a contradiction that 
you know, somebody who wants to become a millionaire uh, or a billionaire and, and uh, uses stoic tools to do it is obviously betraying the very foundation of the stoic philosophy that he allegedly is, is using. Right. So in the Silicon Valley sense, it's more about getting ahead and more individualized as a tool for wealth creation. Whereas you're saying the real purpose of these techniques is to achieve like an excellence of character. Correct. And, and of course, stoicism is not the only philosophy that suffers from these kind of things. Right. I mean, we people, a lot of people, for instance, use Buddhist type meditations. Uh, that doesn't mean in order to sort of calm down or, or deal with, you know, manage pain or, or become more efficient and whatever it is that doesn't make them Buddhists. Right. Uh, right. That they become Buddhist if they actually um, try to live through uh, their their own lives the precepts of Buddhist philosophy, which have actually happened to be fairly similar to the ones uh, that Stoicism gives you. And it's you know one of the major ones is this concept of non-attachment. You shouldn't be attached to externals. You shouldn't be uh, uh, very you know concerned with things like wealth and fame and so on and so forth. Uh, if you're a Buddhist or a Stoic. Mm -hmm. That said. You know, if meditation works for you, go ahead, do it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, so phronesis was a common topic of discussion in ancient Greek philosophy. And I think that's why people tend to gravitate towards Stoicism because of its practical use. Now, yes. you, and you've taken that and translated that into a 52 week by week lessons to help us apply these teachings in modern life. Yes, so phronesis is uh, the Greek word that is often ref uh, translated uh, rather awkwardly as practical wisdom. Um, and the word practical there is important. I say awkwardly because really the better, a better translation uh, comes from the Latin uh, prudentia, and, and which translates into the English prudent, prudence. The problem with prudence is that these days uh, the word has shifted meaning in English, and it just tends to mean, you know, if you're prudent, it means that you're not taking risks, that, that you're you know, taking a uh, situation under, under examination and trying to minimize your risks. But the original uh, uh, meaning of the term prudent was, in fact, uh, going through life with a knowledge of what is good and what is not good for you. And that's what practical wisdom or phronesis is. It's one of the fundamental four Stoic virtues. Stoic, Stoics uh, recognize and organize their lives around four uh, so-called cardinal virtues. One is phronesis or practical wisdom. And then the remaining three are courage, justice, and temperance. Um, practical wisdom is defined in, in, um, in general in the, in the ancient world as the knowledge of what is good and what is bad for you. Mm -hmm. And for the Stoics, that particular knowledge, that knowledge actually comes down to a very simple answer. Everything that is under my control is good for me. Um, and everything that is not under my control is irrelevant. Um, it's not, it's not my concern. And so the good uh, amounts to using well what is under my control and bad amounts to using badly what is under my control. Everything else is neutral. And so it seems simple. In fact, it is simple conceptually, but it's really difficult to up, to, to actually practice, uh, which is why it takes quite a bit of effort and, and, and mindfulness to actually do it. Right. So uh, essentially, this this turns out this can be cashed out in, in the following way. So what is it that is under my control? Epictetus actually spells spells this out right at the beginning of the Enchiridion. Uh, in Enchiridion 1.1, 1, 1, he says that things under your control are essentially your judgments, your opinions, and your decisions to act. Everything else, including your body, your property, your reputation, and so on, are not under your control. Which, if you if you just hear it for the first time, it's like, wait a minute, that's nonsense. 
first of all, there are a lot of thoughts that I don't control. And second of all, of course, I have something to say about my body and my reputation and so on and so forth. Um, but what Epictetus is saying, he's, he's, he was not stupid, so he, he understood, he knew about this kind of objection. What he was saying was a little more subtle than what it sounds at first, uh, at first sight, the first time that you hear it. Um, sure, some of your thoughts, in fact, many of your thoughts are actually not under your control. They just float in and out of your mind. That There's a lot of subconscious thinking that goes on in the human mind, and that's not under your control. Um, not only that, but you can actually be prompted to think uh, about certain things unwillingly by other people. You know, if I say right now, the classic example would be, you know, don't think about a pink elephant. I'm pretty sure you're thinking about a pink elephant. And, you know, that that wasn't under your control. It was just the result of an external stimulus, which is my voice yeah. uh, mentioning uh, <laughs> pink elephants. So now Epictetus knew all of this. What he was saying, however, is that there is a subset, a very important, crucial subset of conscious thought or deliberate thoughts that are under your control and these are your endorsed opinions your judgments about things and your decisions to act so i may be what uh, sometimes is referred to as a sort of an unconscious racist let's say right so you, you can do this these, these days um, psychologists do the, all these fun fun experiments showing you that even though you think you're not a racist in fact you tend to react in a certain way when you see a person of a different skin color and so on and so forth so you an unconscious most of us are unconscious racists it turns out right but that one i have no control over on the other hand if i start saying look racism is actually a good idea and i'm going to act uh in you know in concert in in, in 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 consequence then that is under my control that's my decision that's my deliberate uh, you know judgment and That's the sort of thing that Epictetus is saying is under your control and in fact it's a crucial thing in life because that means that you can uh, uh, Improve yourself by working on your judgments mm -hmm. by refining your ability to arrive at good judgments and better better judgment in fact almost the entirety of our book uh, which is organized around Epictetus uh, sort of version of stoicism really can be understood as an exercise, a single exercise is in, in improving our judgment. Right. Now, what about the stuff that is allegedly not under our control, like my body, right? So Epictetus says, you know, your body is not under your control. It's like, what do you mean? I can decide what to eat and what not to eat and follow a, follow a healthy diet. I can decide to go and exercise you know, regularly so that I improve my health. I can decide to go to the doctor on a regular basis and you know, practice preventive medicine. Well, of course, it's under my control. But those are actions, right? Those are actions, first of all. So the actions are under your control. The outcomes are not. Mm -hmm. Because I can do all of those things, and then all of a sudden I get a virus, and I'm in bed with a fever. Uh, or, or a car hits me and breaks my leg, and I'm in the hospital. So the outcomes of those actions are not under your control. And in fact, the Stoics would say the outcomes of any action is not under your ultimate control. You can influence it, of course. And you are the one that decides to, to, to start the action. Uh, that's under your control. But the outcome is not because it depends on a bunch of other uh, external circumstances that uh, you really have no saying uh, about. Right. And so the notion is that if you understand and sort of and, and internalize this, is that you're going to spend your life refining your judgments and your decisions to act or not to act. And then you try to develop a attitude of equanimity toward the outcomes. You know, you understand what I guess your mother was telling you when you were a kid, which is, you know, in life, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why it's so important to focus on the process and not the outcome. Exactly.
Exactly. And so you shouldn't get too cocky or too happy when you win because in part that's not your doing. It's, you know, you got lucky. And you shouldn't get too, too, too upset when you lose because that also is in fact in part not your doing. You should really be concerned only about the process and not the outcome. Absolutely. What's the Krishna quote? You know, you have the rights to your labor, but not the fruits of your labor. Or in like in a modern day yeah. twist, it's like you have the rights to your tweets, but not the, the amount of followers you gain from that tweet. <laughs> exactly. What you tweet is under your control. <laughs> right. So this, this whole dichotomy of control is, it seems like the foundation of stoicism. Like you really need to have a good grasp of this to begin with. Yeah, it is the foundation of stoicism. Certainly, in in the in the version of stoicism that comes uh, from Epictetus, uh, he's the, he's really the one that that puts the, all all these emphasis on sort of what we call the dichotomy of control. However, the same notion is in fact found all the way to the beginning of stoicism, uh, all the way back to Zeno of Citium, who was the founder of Stoic philosophy back around 300 BCE. Uh, it's except that the early Stoics put it differently. The, the early Stoics uh, from Zeno to Seneca uh, would say, look, uh, the only thing that should concern you is virtue because virtue is the only thing that is inherently good. Everything else is neutral and you, sh and, 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 uh, you shouldn't be concerned with it. It's essentially a different way of putting the same notion that Epictetus does. Epictetus, I think, puts it in more dramatic terms. Uh, uh, as I said right at the beginning of the Enchiridion, but the early Stoics would say uh, a similar thing. Virtue is, of course, means the, the four virtues that I mentioned earlier, but in general means working on your character. So the thing that is under your control is trying to improve yourself as a as a person. Whether you succeed in specific uh, endeavors or not uh, is not really up to you, and therefore it's it's something that you should simply take with equanimity. So what's in my control is that I do my job as a human. I do my best in all situations, and I always aim to do the right thing. Right, and you should bet on, on that in terms of your happiness. Now, by happiness, of course, I don't mean you know this the happy feeling of hey la 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 I'm I'm happy, because that one is uh, you know fleeting and it varies from circumstance with circumstances and so on. By happiness, I mean eudaimonia, a life worth living. Mm -hmm. So. Your bet, the, 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 the stoic notion is that your bet in terms of eudaimonia should be to bet on the stuff that is under your control because then you're guaranteed to be happy, right? If, if, you, if you bet on stuff that is under your control, then, you know, it's up to you. You, you, you have final saying on what's going on in, in your life and therefore, in fact, uh, Epictetus does say uh, in the Enchiridion that if you understand what really belongs to you, and what doesn't belong to you, and you focus on the first, you will be happy, you will never complain with anybody, uh, you will never blame anybody, and you'll be free. Mm -hmm. Free from what? Well, free from uh, the constraints that are imposed on us, by on, on others, because uh, we, uh, as Epictetus puts it, we, are, we become slaves of other people as soon as we want something that they have and we don't. So if we want wealth and you don't have it, then you become a slave of the people that can give you Wealth. If you become, if you want fame, even internet fame, then you become a slave of the people that have, that have the power to give you or not give you fame. But if you don't care about that stuff, if you say no, the only thing that I really care about is my own development as a person, then nobody can take that away from me. Now, yeah, but what about as a writer and a practicing Stoic? Don't you still want some validation? I mean, when you publish a book. Um. 
To some extent, I do, and that's why I'm not a sage, <laughs> right? I'm not a perfect Stoic. The sage would be the, the, the Stoic equivalent uh, of uh, a Christian saint or the Stoic equivalent of a Buddhist, uh, enlightened Buddhist, right? Uh, yeah, so I'm not perfect. So, so to some extent, I catch myself still caring a little bit about what other people think about, about uh, what I do. Um, but I'm working honestly and, and constantly towards sort of diminishing that uh, more and more. I can actually honestly say that when uh, How to Be a Stoic came out, and it was actually a success, it, you know, this was a, uh, a best-selling book and it translated, being translated in like 11 or 12 different editions, I was surprised. And when I wrote the book, I honestly did not care how it was going to do. Uh, obviously, my publisher did. Uh, for obvious reasons, but um, in my case, the, the point of writing the book was: look, I, I am been practicing this philosophy. It has changed my life uh, for the better. It is changing other people's lives for the better. So I just need to write the book. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wrote it because it was a, a personal need. It was, in fact, even a, uh, an exercise in self-discovery and self-reflection because when you have to write uh, things down, you sort of discover how you yourself think about stuff. So really, I did it for me. Oh, yeah. The best way to learn is to teach it. Yeah, exactly. And and, and I honestly did not was not concerned with whether the book was going well or not. I mean, this was my 10th book, I think. And, uh, you know, most of the other ones were uh, sort of technical academic books, which, you know, if they sold a thousand copies was... Uh, was, was very good. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't expect anything more than that. Um, I was pleasantly surprised when I found out that lots of people were interested in, and, and they were uh, writing to me saying that the book uh, was being helpful to them. Um, but but yeah, it is part of the stoic practice to sort of distance yourself from that and say, well, you know, if that's their opinion. If somebody disagrees with you, somebody doesn't think you're uh, doing something good. Uh, that's their opinion. That's fine. Now, sometimes that doesn't mean you don't pay attention to other people's opinions, right? So even in stoicism, you do try to learn from other people. Um, it's just that you don't care about their judgment. Yeah, it's like you you can still seek feedback, but not validation. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So if somebody criticizes me, for instance, uh, I do try my best. Again, you know, I'm fallible because I'm not a sage, but I do try my best to to, to go beyond the the initial sort of irritations. Yeah, what the hell? Why is this guy saying this? And then, well, maybe maybe he has something that that I, did, that I missed. Maybe maybe he didn't express it in the best way. Maybe he expressed it in a way that it was intentionally, uh, you know, hurtful or something like that. But I don't care about that. Let me see if there is a kernel of truth there. Is is, is there? You know, does he have a point? And if he has a point, then it's good for me to learn from it and you know, moving forward. If he doesn't have a point, then the joke the joke is on him. Yeah. Because he's, he's just mistaken. <laughs> so yeah. what's, what's that to mean, right? Yeah. So let's talk about insults for a little while. Because, I mean, obviously we can visualize, sure. we can use the negative visualization and imagine the insults or the, the criticism, the negative criticism that we're going to get. And to remove that sting, right? That can help. But also, what about the fact that we're imagining that there's assholes out there and how to kind of keep our, it would be sympathy, I guess. Well, so... The, one of the first things that you do in stoicism is you rephrase things like so you don't you, you, you try to train yourself not to think that there are assholes out there, but that there are misguided people <laughs> uh, whose intentions you don't necessarily know. So, for instance, there is a uh, um, person that I know that has taken uh, uh, one of my intensive courses on stoicism you know, at, uh, at Stoic Camp. 
Um, and he lives in New York and he bites a lot. And uh, as you might imagine, he very often comes across people who almost kill him, you know, automobiles, uh, people that drive. And, uh, you know, he used to get really upset about this kind of stuff. And he used to say, you know, to yell, you know, asshole, et cetera, et cetera, which is a very, if you live in New York, it's a very common scene, you know, yeah. bicyclists uh, telling uh, 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 car drivers to or, or taxi drivers to you know, go to hell. And then at some point, so he, uh, when he started practicing stoicism, it, it struck him that a better way to do things would be to rephrase things in his own mind and imagine a scenario under which what the uh, car driver was doing was actually reasonable. So he started saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe that guy is, is rushing to the hospital because his wife is pregnant and delivering a child. Right. Now, of course, you don't know that, and most of the and most of the times that's just not tr true, <laughs> right? But what you're doing is you're you're giving the benefit of the doubt to the person. You know, maybe maybe he thinks that he has good reasons for doing what he's doing, um, and in fact, you don't know. They may have good reasons uh, for being in 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 a rush. Uh, you have no idea. You don't. We, we we really don't know much about what other people think or why they're doing what they're doing, and it helps yourself to calm down and to say, okay. Well, this was a dangerous thing, but after all, I survived it. It's not, you know, it, it did not hit me and it's gone. So what is the point of being upset after the fact? By rephrasing the event mentally, by reframing the event, the event mentally, uh, you can sort of cope with it much, much better. This, by the way, is a stoic technique that has uh, been validated by modern psychology. You know, the framing effect, it's a real thing uh, in, in modern psychology. It, is, it turns out that it is in fact true that... If we frame things differently, if we think about things, the exact same, you know, factual things, factual situation differently, we react differently, we feel differently. Right. This is one of the, the guiding principles of CBT, right? It, that, correct. Yeah. Now, when I say that, people say, oh, but then that means that stoicism is just a mind trick. Yeah. <laughs> um, life is a mind trick. Mm -hmm. I mean, we go, we go through life by interpreting things in a certain way. When you say, you know, going back to the example of the, the car driver that cuts you off, when you say to that guy, oh, you asshole, uh, you don't know that he's an asshole. You're just framing things in a particular way, right? And you choose to frame things in the most negative way because you want to feel your rage uh, justified, right? And so all the Stoics are doing is, look, instead of picking that arbitrary uh, frame, which isn't not good for you because it's not solving the problem and it's making you feel mad why don't you pick a different frame and and think of the whole situation differently in a way that you can uh you know handle better and and react more more calmly that's that's just going to be better for you right now i want to add to that example of the the biker and you know the, the practicing stoic he would also imagine before he leaves the house that day that he's going to be met by traffic and also some people getting mad at him. So better to prepare for that situation ahead of time. That's right. Both Seneca and Marcus Aurelius say that explicitly. Seneca says that a, a prepared mind is, is, a, is a mind that is actually able to cope better with whatever situation uh, comes about. And, uh, you know, we are also creatures of habit. We do encounter the same situation over and over, right? I have a, a my, my co-author, for instance, uh, Greg Lopez. Uh, he, he has a real problem with New York, New York City subways, especially peak hour. Uh, you know, he, he has a hard time dealing with the crowd. And what 
it does is a premeditatio malorum, a premeditation of, of adversity uh, before leaving the home in, in the morning. And it says, well, you know what's going to happen. You have to take the subway. There's going to be lots of people. So don't be surprised. Uh, don't, don't be upset about it. It's, it's just part of your life. You know, develop a certain number of coping strategies. You know, bring yourself, bring a, a book with you or a, a podcast to listen to. You know, find a corner uh, of the subway uh, car so that you're going to be you know, away from the crowd going in and out. There are coping mechanisms, but the most important coping mechanism is actually to expect what's going to happen and not be surprised by it. Right. And you can see this, you can see this in the experience first responders, like when you work alongside with police or firefighters and they go and they help someone who's overdosed and they give them Narcan. And then when they wake up there, they can be rude and, and mad at you. But the experienced guys, you know, don't respond on an emotional level. It's just exactly, exactly. Uh, and you don't you don't take it personally. And it's not about it's about you. It's the, the guy just you know uh, had an accident, survived a bad situation, and it is kind of a normal thing, unfortunately, for human beings to come back and and sort of be mad at something or someone. And mm-hmm. if you happen to be the the guy in front of them, then you're gonna be mad at you. But it's not personal, and it's a normal reaction. Um, and so you expect it, and you say, okay, well, it will pass. The guy will eventually realize that this, this, this isn't the proper way to uh, react to somebody who probably saved your life. Uh-huh. Um, and, and you're going to deal with it. It's, it's part of the uh, normal experience. Marcus Aurelius says explicitly in the meditations, you know, he, he, uh, he, he talks to himself and he says, you know, remember, today you're going to get out uh, in the world. Then you'll find a bunch of people who are going to be treacherous and, you know, backstabbing and, you know, annoying and so on and so forth. Well, that's uh, that's life. You don't expect otherwise. But at the same time, they can't touch you because you are developed. You have developed your, these these attitude of equanimity toward other people because you don't control. You understand that you don't control other people's reactions and, and, and thoughts and, and words. You control only your reactions and thoughts and words. Yeah. Uh, and so you know that they cannot touch you. And by the way, he said he keeps going in the same passage. He says, by the way, remember that you've done that in the past as well. You know, you, you also got angry. You also probably were annoying uh, to to some people. Uh, and you know, we we're here in in this world to work with each other, not against each other. That's a fundamental Stoic concept. Stoicism is very much about cosmopolitanism. It's this notion that we're all a brotherhood and sisterhood of all humanity. Right. And so that, you know, individual human beings can definitely be annoying and irritating in a particular, in particular situations. But if you step back regularly and you remind yourself, yeah, but these are brothers and sisters. These, these are just like me. You know, I've, I've been annoying myself in the past. It's not yeah. like they're doing something extraordinary. Then that, can, then that sort of helps dealing with, with the situation. Yeah, and Marcus Aurelius also has a passage where he mentions something along the lines of if you don't have a solution or something to offer that person, then there's no reason to judge them. That's right. So if he says, uh, uh, so very nicely, he says, you know, either teach them or put up with them. Right. So, so if you see somebody who is misguided and you know, is, is doing something wrong or is, you know, expressing a, a bad opinion or whatever it is, well, the first thing you should try to do uh, within reason is to teach them, meaning meaning not not going on a soapbox and sort of give them a lecture, but simply trying to uh, to uh, convince them that what they're doing is not exactly it's not the best thing, or mm-hmm. what they're saying is not the best thing. But sometimes we fail. In fact, often we fail in doing so. And that point, at that point, the only thing you can it's left to do is just to endure. It's like okay, well he's misguided. Um, Epictetus has this wonderful image uh, in a. In in, uh, to deal with similar situations, he says, so, so somebody said something wrong or has done something wrong, 
and you're going to get upset about it and you're going to beat him up and you're whatever. And he says, but think about it this way. These people are, are sick. They're just like blind people. They, they have a deficiency. They don't see the truth. They don't see reality as it actually is. They're mistaken about things. Now, what are you going to do with a blind person? You're going to beat him up because he doesn't see where he's going? And of course not. You're trying to help him, the first thing. And if he bumps into you, you, you understand that, you know, it wasn't his fault because he can't do any better. And so you endure uh, the fact that he's bumping into you. The same thing should, the same attitude should apply to pretty much everything that other people do to us. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's like Viktor Frankl said, in between stimulus and response, that's, there's a space. And in that space is, is Epictetus telling you what to do. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Your inner Epictetus is there to tell you what to do. In fact, Epictetus uses a very similar analogy to the, or very similar concept to the one that Viktor Frankl um, uh, deployed, um, which is, uh, again, in the Enchiridion, at some point early on, he says that what we should do whenever we have an imp- what Stoics call an impression, meaning uh, we, we have some kind of we acquire some kind of information from the ex- from the external world um, Every time that we acquire an impression we should we should never Readily agree and accept that impression. We should always step back and say wait a minute You're just an impression. Let me take a close look at you and see what you are and his example was for instance one of one of his examples is you know, so you see a, uh, an attractive member of the opposite or same-sex depending on whatever you're you're uh, predilection is um, and your immediate thought is like oh wow wouldn't, wouldn't it be good to have sex with that person you should step back and say wait hold on yes that person is aesthetically ple- pleasing fine that's a fact of life but does it in fact follow that it would be good for me to pursue that person and have sex well that depends right if you're in a committed relationship for instance with someone else then it's not a good thing because you're going to be betraying your partner's uh, you know trusting you and so on and so forth so so it's like you need your space you need this, this cognitive distancing from the immediate impression that the world makes on you in order to be able to deliberate because if you react if you simply react without deliberation to things then more likely than not you're going to make mistakes you're going to do things that you're going to regret right and, and they also mentioned everyone will blush. These things will arise, but you it's up to you to put a halt to that. Yes. So so the, uh, the there is a certain level of immediate emotional reaction, such as blushing, for instance, uh, that you just mentioned, um, or, or the, the fight or flight response that we have when 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 we we are afraid of something uh, happening suddenly, then we have this rush of adrenaline, we feel this rush of adrenaline. Those things are not under our control. Those are natural physiological reactions that no human being can actually control. That's not the point. The point is, but hold on. I'm blushing because of what? Because I made a fool of myself and I said something stupid in, 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 in uh, social, you know, in, 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 in the company of others. Well, so what? Everybody says stupid things once in a while um why should i be particularly concerned with this thing so this is this is the kind of you know the analysis comes after the 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 first the first um uh, sort of physiological uh natural reaction and it the stoics try to train themselves to be more reflective to pause before acting you know unlike the famous commercial don't just do it you know stop and think about it uh, essentially and then then you decide and sometimes it may be it may turn out that um, it is a good idea to do it and um, more often than not it's it's probably not yeah it's just a sign that you're living living an examined life yes exactly so earlier you mentioned cosmopolitanism which i love this idea we're all citizens of the cosmos did the stoics think that we should treat everyone as if they were virtuous 
Um, no, we should treat everyone, however, as um, as if they were human beings capable of being virtuous, which they are. Right. So, so the the Stoic idea. So the, the first person that we know of that has used the, um, the word cosmopolitanism probably was Socrates, uh, or at least the concept, certainly the concept. Uh, Socrates famously, when when he was asked, you know, where are you from, he would never say I'm from Athens or Corinth or whatever. He would say I'm a citizen of the world. And which literally translates in, in Greek as cosmopolitas. Uh, now, the, both the cynics uh, and the Stoics, who were both inspired by Socrates, adopted this notion of cosmopolitanism, although they went in the different directions. So the cynics had a more limited notion that they basically said, yeah, we're, we're all brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but in fact, we're going to act essentially individually. Um, you know, sort of, uh, the, the, the cynics were very much individualist. They were, they were doing their own thing. The Stoics developed it as an actual potential philosophy of life. So for the Stoics, it follows from the fact that we are all brothers and sisters that a major goal of human life should be to improve uh, social living. In fact, um, uh, Marcus Aurelius repeats this a number of times in the meditation. He says um, that we're capable of reason and we're social animals. It follows, therefore, that our main goal in life should be to use reason in order to improve society. Um, that is actually, if you know, if if any were to ask me, you know, what is the point of Stoic philosophy? That is the point, uh, as uh, Seneca says, to use reason in order to solve problems. Yeah, and that's why they did not stray away from being, their involvement in politics once again, and it was for the greater good of humanity. <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, when uh, when people people often have uh, you know a number of misconceptions about Stoicism, one of which is that it's a, it's a very individualistic uh, philosophy and it doesn't have anything to uh, to do with social involvement, which is really bizarre, because first of all, the two things are not mutually exclusive. Yes, it is an individual philosophy for sure. It is an individual of it's a philosophy of individual self improvement, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, but the Stoics did not see a sharp distinction, as we tend to set, to see today often, between individual and society. Uh, we're all connected by a, a cosmic web of cause and effect, which means that for the Stoic, uh, if I try to improve myself, that automatically improves the human cosmopolis. And if I work to improve the human cosmopolis, I automatically improve myself. So the two are, not only they're not mutually exclusive, but they kind of go together. Um, there, there's really no contradiction there. And we have stark examples uh, in Stoic history of how this actually played out in practice. Um, there's a, a group of, uh, of, of uh, Stoic philosophers and senators in uh, Imperial Rome that is loosely referred to as the Stoic opposition. And these were people who were openly opposed and critical of uh, the emperors Nero, Vespasian, and Domitian, who were you know, fairly tyrannical. And as a result, some of them were, you know, executed. Some of them were sent into exile. At one point, Nero's secretary tells him, who was, by the way, uh, uh, Epictetus' master. Epictetus studied his life as his life as a slave, and um, uh, his second master, apparently in in Rome, was uh, the, the secretary of, of Nero, the emperor Nero. Yeah. And the secretary, you know, Nero's secretary told the emperors, like, you should really get rid of these. Because their philosophy is opposed to the very notion of a absolute power and uh, and within the empire, so it's absolutely the case that the Stoics did, in fact, pave with their lives or with exile. Um, Musonius Rufus, uh, who was Epictetus' teacher, was sent into exile twice um, by two different emperors. 
because of his political opinions, because he was uh, speaking truth to power. So, so it, while it is true that Stoicism doesn't, as a philosophy, doesn't imply any particular uh, sort of political uh, portion of the, of, the, of the political spectrum. I mean, it doesn't, it's, not, it's simply not true that Stoics ought to be liberal or progressive or conservatives or whatever it is. You can be a Stoic and, and endorse a number of political positions, so generally, broadly speaking. Yeah. But it is certainly the case that they also were against tyranny and they put their mouth uh, or sometimes their head uh, where their their you know their their money or their head where their mouth was. Yeah, they stood up against wrongdoing. And another common yeah. misconception was that they were emotionless or maybe just grim. But this is far from the truth. Yeah. So that's the the, the problem. There is that the word the English word stoic with a little s as opposed to a capital s uh, typically means you know somebody who goes through life with a stiff upper lip and who tries to you know not show emotions you know that sort of stuff. But that's a, a distortion of the original stoicism. It's kind of interesting actually uh, that. Uh, four of the major uh, Hellenistic philosophies um, have given rise to uh, modern English words that are kind of distortions of the original, right? So, so today to be a Stoic means stiff upper lip, which uh, it's not, as I'm going to explain in a minute, what the ancient Stoics meant. To be an Epicurean today is to, you know, look for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which is definitely not what the early Epicureans were doing. Uh, to be a cynic today is to be somebody who just says no all the times, which is not what the early cynics uh, were doing. And to be a skeptic is also somebody who's like, you know, doesn't believe anything, which is not what the original skeptics were doing. So it's kind of interesting to me that four of the major Hellenistic philosophies have uh, given names to four different attitudes in the modern English language that, that kind of based on a kernel of truth, but at the same time distort um, the original philosophy. So back to stoicism and the stiff upper lip and the emotions. No, absolutely, they were not about uh, suppressing emotions. What they thought is that the emotions come in, what we today call emotions, come into two broad categories, the pate and the eupateiai. The pate are the um, negative, disruptive emotions. The word pate, pate or pathos uh, in the singular is actually the root for the English word pathology. So that right there tells you it's not something good. And the eupateiai were the positive emotions. And the notion, the notion was that uh, a stoic practitioner should try to stay, to, to move away as much as possible from the negative disruptive emotions, but also cultivate, um, actively cultivate the positive or constructive emotions. So examples of these are, you know, anger and hatred are negative emotions and they have no place in life for the stoic. But love and joy and a sense of justice are positive emotions and they absolutely have, not only have a place, but they're actually crucial to the practice of a stoic. Mm -hmm. So the notion isn't to avoid emotions or to suppress emotions. The, the notion is basically to reorient your emotional spectrum away from stuff that is not good for you and towards stuff that is good for you and for others. For the Stoics, joy replaces pleasure, wishing replaces desire, and caution replaces fear. Correct. So caution replaces fear in that it's better to prepare for things that could go wrong. Basically, it's like action over emotion. Yes, that's right. Right, right. Being afraid of things, uh, you know, it's not very helpful. Uh, be cautious about things. Absolutely, is, is helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole thing is this philosophy is, uh, you know, today it's you're forced to explain what you fail to embody and philosophy is meant to be embodied. So it should be visual. 
Yes, so that's an, an interesting point. Uh, of course, a, modern, a lot of modern philosophy is nothing like this, right? So if, if you are interested in the meaning of life, uh, the last thing you want to do is to walk into a philosophy department in a university uh, and, and ask them about it because they will look at you puzzled or they'll laugh at you. Well, that's not what we do. Um, that's too bad. Uh, it is in part what they should do. I mean, modern academic philosophy is like every ac other academic uh, discipline, a highly specialized, highly technical discipline. I, I have been, as I said, I'm a professional philosopher as well as a professional scientist. I can tell you that um, both of them are very, very technical, very, very uh, specific. You know, if you want to make a contribution in, in either technical philosophy or technical science, you're going to do it in a very tiny portion of what is uh, what is. Uh, uh, the entire field. That's fine. That's the way the academy works. I don't think there is a problem there. Where there is a problem is in the kind of scorn almost that many of my colleagues uh, have for practical philosophy, for people that that um, go out and, and try to you know help other people use philosophy as a way to improve their lives. That sort of stuff should be done also at universities because let's not remember, not, let's not forget that. Uh, the point of university training, you know, point, the point of a college degree is not just to allow people to, uh, you know, to give people the technical skills to find a job. That's certainly part of it. Uh, but the broader, more important, I would say, uh, point of a university education or of education in general is to create good citizens, uh, the kind of citizens that, you know, can vote and decide on their on their own whether to vote one way or the other. And the kind of citizen that, that is reflective and knowledgeable enough to actually make decisions in life. Uh, that are, you know, of a certain input. And that kind of stuff can be uh, taught by philosophy, especially by practical philosophy. So, so that the very much is a place, I think, for practical philosophy in the academy. Definitely. So tell me more about cognitive journaling. That's a, uh, one of the standard uh, stoic techniques, which is also adopted by uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, basically, think about Marcus Aurelius' meditations, and that's pretty much what it is. Uh, uh, the Meditations was not meant for publication. Uh, we don't know what the original title, if it had any, uh, was. But one of the early titles that we find in the literature um, is uh, To Himself. And that's because Marcus was writing this was his personal philosophical diary. Um, the Meditation is a wonderful book, but people often complain when they read it about two things. First of all, that it's preachy, and second of all, that it's repetitive. Well, no kidding. Uh, he's, preach, he's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself uh, that there are certain things that he shouldn't be doing and there are other things that he should be doing. And it's repetitive because, of course, like everyone else, uh, he kept making the same mistakes or similar mistakes. So he went back and said, ah, you've done it again. Now remember, this is what you should be doing. Um, the technique in general is, is uh, the, the, the idea which is found not only in Marcus Aurelius, um, both Seneca and Epictetus explicitly tell you that you shouldn't end the day without uh, going over what you've done during the day and and asking yourself if you did something good or if you did something not good and reflect on what you did and why. Yeah. And particularly reflect on what you might be doing better the next time around. I think it was Seneca who mentioned something about the sexual self-examination at the end of the day. Is that kind of what your Correct. Stoic diary looks like? Yeah, that's very much what my uh, uh, mine looks like, uh, although I actually tend to go for the a slightly different version that you find in, in Epictetus where he says at some point, you know, the, do not let your tender eyelids close 
before you know before you actually examined uh, what happened during the day and asking yourself you know what what did you do right what did you do wrong and what what you could could have done better but either either version you know you can take Marcus as as an as a inspiration or you can take Epictetus or Seneca it doesn't matter the point is um, to spend a few minutes this doesn't need to be you know this, this long thing. But every day or almost every day, uh, ideally before going to bed, simply because it's the, the end of the day, you, can, you tend to be in a more reflective mood, you know, pick a, pick a moment uh, in a corner of your apartment or house that's quiet. And so in my case, I write it down. You, it doesn't have to be written, but it, I think it helps actually to write it down uh, as an exercise and, and ask yourself these, these simple questions. Go over. It's not a diary in the sense of, oh, today I did this or I did that. It's a it's a moral diary. It's a philosophical diary. So it focuses on whatever happened during the day that had moral balance. How you treated other people. Uh, you know, did you did you make the right decision? Did you act uh, you know in the right way or not? And if not, why not? And then the notion isn't to indulge in sort of regret or, or beat yourself up or anything like that. The notion is to analyze what you did and remind yourself where you want to be. What kind of person do you want to be? Well, today you were not that kind of person. Fine. Then you can learn from your mistakes today, your your uh, you know incorrect actions today, and and maybe tomorrow uh, you'll do better. Um, one of the reasons you'll do better tomorrow is precisely because you constantly go over your day and think about it, and you have you know you're mindful about uh, what you did and what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and when you're going over the, your day, it's I would advise putting these reflections down on paper instead of waiting until you lie down in bed to let this all stir and make you go crazy when you're trying to go to sleep. That's right. And in fact, Seneca says explicitly he does it before going to bed, and then he finds it therapeutic because once he has laid down this, this stuff, he says, you know, I forgive myself, and then I go to bed with a you know a serene mind because I, I, I know that I learned from my mistakes and I don't have to go over them again and again in the middle of the night. Oh yeah, definitely. Go into bed with a little bit of clarity. So now this doesn't have to be from your new handbook, but what stoic practice has most positively impacted your life? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the philosophical diary is way up there um, as a, as a practice. That's that's for sure. Um, but also uh, some some of the exercises in uh, so-called self-deprivation are important to me. Um, so these are these are mild mild self deprivation exercises, nothing nothing horrible, nothing nothing particularly difficult. Um, and the, the way they work is that you you identify an area or two where you have particular problems. So, for instance, in my case, I tend to you know eat a little too much, and so I know that that's a problem for me. And that's the stoic exercise in self deprivation is that, okay. Well, if that's your problem, then once or twice a week fast. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you want to do that? You know, this is, um, it's not just to lose weight, although it does help, or to improve your, your health. Although those are positive side, side you know, effect of the practice. The notion is, well, look, here's something that apparently you crave more than it's reasonable to. And by constantly, you know, every week going through an, a, a period of time where you actually consciously deprave yourself of that thing, what you're doing is you remind yourself that you can definitely live without that sort of stuff. You can do better. You can. It's it's it is within your power not to overindulge. And over time, the notion is that that you know that gives you the confidence basically to um, be more temperate in a in a regular on a regular fashion. I mean, Musonius Rufus, after all, did say that temperance uh, begins at the table. You can you have three time, three 
occasions every day to exercise temperance every time you sit at a table and to eat something um and it's very difficult for for a lot of people um because we're, we live in a, in a society where we're constantly bombarded by the opportunity to eat stuff um you know with this 24-hour food is available 24 hours a day it's very high calories it's very you know it's very abundant and it's easy it's cheap to, to gather uh, compared to what our ancestors uh, were doing and so as a result it, it, it becomes more difficult sort of to exercise uh, a little bit of self-restraint so uh, so that kind of exercise i think is is slowly been changing my life for the better another one of my favorite ones is the, the go 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 a week without buying anything exercise um, so I'd, sometimes in the beginning of the week or on monday morning i say okay this is this week i'm not buying anything other than the bare necessities you know food um, anything else is out so no online shopping no in-person shopping no nothing um, and sometimes it's difficult because like, ah, I really need this stuff. And then, and then you think, well, do you really need it? I don't think so. You can definitely wait until next week or even next month uh, in order to get it. And so that means you don't actually need it. It's just that you want it. Um, and uh, you're working on your wants. You're working on your desires. One of the three famous disciplines that Epictetus says we should, we should practice all the time is the discipline of desire and aversion. We should retrain ourselves to desire the right thing and to be averse uh, of the of the of the things that are really bad for us, um, not the other way around. Too often we desire things that are actually not good for us, uh, and they get us into trouble. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned fasting. What about is are there any other practices that you do as far as voluntary discomfort? Um, well, the numb buying things is one. Um, I also abstain from alcohol once or twice a week uh, for the same reason. You know, I'm Italian. Uh, uh, for us, it's almost unthinkable to actually have dinner without a glass of wine. Um, you but then again, yeah, exactly. But, but, but in fact, it isn't, right? It's perfectly thinkable. And so once or twice a week, I do it on purpose. Uh, and initially, it was kind of difficult. It's like I felt like, oh, my gosh, what, now what? Am I supposed to just drink, drink water with my meal? And, uh, and then it becomes... Uh, more easy. Uh, some people do a other kind of exercise, like you know, taking a cold shower, for instance, um, which is fine. Those are those are also uh, exercises in um, uh, that, that remind you of the fact that you can actually endure hardship, right? You know, taking a cold shower, or going out in the cold weather, underdressed, that kind of stuff. But since that's usually, that's not actually one of my problems, I don't have a problem. Uh, you know, I don't suffer cold. I don't have a problem. Uh, or at least not much. I don't have a problem with that sort of stuff. So I, I do less that kind of things. I think the, the exercises in self-deprivation work particularly well uh, if you focus on, on the kind of stuff that you really have trouble uh, exercising temperance in. Yeah, the cold shower is great, and obviously it's extremely popular, not only just for the fact that it makes you appreciate when you have hot water, but also, I mean, just imagine if you're taking a shower and then somebody uses the hot water downstairs in the, in the kitchen, and right. then the water turns cold, and you're more mentally resilient to handle that. That's right. The, the only thing that I will caution um, about those exercises is that, like everything in stoicism, a lot hinges on why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So the same, the same exact action uh, can have positive balance and negative balance for a stoic depending on the on the motivations of the agent who actually does the action. So uh, th- let's take the cold shower. So if you're doing the cold, if you're taking cold showers because you really want to improve your endurance to you know harsh conditions, or you want to uh, renew your appreciation for the miraculous fact that, that we have hot water every time we feel uh, like it, that's great. That's that's right. Um, 
mental framework. But if you're doing it um, because you want to show other people you're tough and you know take yourself you know, a picture of yourself doing taking the shower and then post it on Instagram, that's not that's not good. Then then you're doing it for the wrong reasons and you, you're probably better off not doing it at all. The same goes for uh, more importantly, even for actions that that some people would think are unquestionably morally good. Let's say, for instance, that I go and, you know, this weekend and volunteer in the soup kitchen, uh, you know, uh, serving meals to the homeless. Okay, great. Most people would say, well, that's obviously a good thing to do. The Stoic would say, well, that depends. Why are you doing it? If you're doing it because you really are, in fact, concerned uh, about fellow human beings and you really feel fortunate and you can spend, you want to spend time to help the people that are less fortunate than you, Great. That's the right, the right reason to do it. But if you're doing it so that you can put a line on your resume uh, to get a better job, so it's like, yeah, I volunteer in the soup kitchen. Or if you do it because then you want to, uh, you know, post on Facebook that, hey, look what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm helping the, the homeless. That's, the, that's, that's not good. That's the wrong reason to do it. Yeah. It is not stoic like to play status games. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. So do you set aside time each day to read? Yes. Uh, now, in my case, it's particularly easy because, you know, that's kind of what I do as a profession. I mean, right. Uh, my, my profession cons- consists mostly in three things, reading, writing and teaching. Uh, so I'm particularly lucky from from that perspective. I, I completely appreciate you know, the, the opportunity that I have uh, as an academic to do so. And that is, in fact, one of the objections that have occasionally been uh, sort of moved to stories and like, oh, well, only people that have leisure can, can really afford to do that sort of stuff. You know, most of us are busy with our lives. I don't think that's a fair objection. Um, I think it's true that I have more time than most people to read and write, which is why I don't just read and write for myself. I write and read for a general public. Right. So I spent a lot of time. I mean, I don't expect most people to write books or 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 blogs or or do podcasts and so on and so forth if they actually do have the kind of life that doesn't allow them to do that sort of stuff. But in terms of individual practice, I mean, don't don't people find the time to be Christians, for instance? You know, regular people go to go to um, church on Sunday mornings for an hour. Um, They have. Uh, the Bible or the Gospels at home, and they read it from time to time. You know, right? That, they, that's what that's what being a Christian da, uh, means. And uh, and then and then you try to act accordingly, of course. Um, so I think that Stoicism, in that sense, is no more demanding than any other philosophy or religion. Uh, you know, if you're Muslim, you're supposed to pray a certain mm-hmm. number of the, uh, uh, times a day. You know, you're supposed to read the, the books and so on and so forth. No matter what you do, regardless of how busy your life is, regardless of what your employment is and so on and so forth, you're supposed to do it. And, and good Christians, good Muslims, good Buddhists actually do uh, do it. So I, I don't think that's a problem for, for studies. I tend to do it more than most people would, but that's because I'm, I'm lucky enough that actually I, I can spare the time. And um, uh, to in my mind, in fact, the fact that I'm lucky that way uh, implies that I have a particular responsibility, uh, a duty toward, you know, trying to write about these things or talk about these things for the general public because I, I, have to, I have the time to do it. This is really not just about stoicism. Uh, one of my uh, role models, I guess, in, in terms of academics is uh, Noam Chomsky and uh, the linguist and you know, political activist. And Noam Chomsky... Uh, repeatedly said that he actually wrote a 
really wonderful essay back in the 60s during you know or early 70s during the Vietnam War um, about the role of a public intellectual and in that essay he said that academics have a particular duty to become public intellectuals precisely because they afforded the luxury of spending a lot of time being able to spend a lot of time thinking reading and writing about stuff which most other people just don't have the luxury of and so with that uh, uh, power, so to speak, to use the to paraphrase Spider-Man, comes great responsibility. If you have the privilege of being an intellectual, then you have an obligation. Correct. Exactly. So, what are you reading currently? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Hold on, let me let me look it up because um, normally I read a number, bunch of different things at the same time. That's partly because I have uh, a number of interests, and partly because I have a short attention span, so I need to. <laughs> things um otherwise i get bored so let's see if i get out my um ah, here it is so i'm currently i'm reading um philosophy in the islamic world which is a wonderful book by peter adamson it's part of his series uh, a history of philosophy without gaps which is a podcast actually that adamson has been putting out for years and now it's become a series of books and they are they're really well written so i i really highly recommend it um i am rereading the letters on at by Seneca uh, in the more recent version published by the University of Chicago Press. Um, the University of Chicago Press, Press recently put out all of Seneca, the entire corpus of Seneca, in modern translation, and it's just a wonderful series of books, so, so I highly recommend that. I read some fiction, so right now I'm reading a book called uh, that is entitled M, um, which uh, stands for Mussolini, and it's, it's a... Um, uh, fictional account of the rise of Mussolini uh, to power in Italy. It's highly disturbing um, if you if you ask me, but it's, uh, it's something that people need to read. Um, and then I'm reading uh, the Portable Toro, um, as in um, uh, you know the, the the writer, the American writer, transcendentalist writer of the early 1800s. Uh, that's partly because my wife is very much into uh, American transcendentalism. In fact, we met. Um, at uh, Stoic camp because she arrived at Stoicism through the transcendentalists. The transcendentalists were, uh, particularly Duro and Emerson, were influenced by the Stoics, especially Seneca. Oh, wow. And so that's how we met. Yeah, so that's how we met. And, and so I, I feel like I owe it to her, since she's reading a lot of Stoic stuff that I uh, give her, then I, I owe it to her to read both Duro and Emerson, and that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Aside from the ancient Stoics, are there any modern Stoics that are adding anything new? Oh, sure. Um, well, the, depending on what your inclination is and your background, um, I would highly recommend uh, pretty much anything by Don Robertson. Uh, right now I have his uh, latest on my desk, um, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, which you know, the title is a little bit... On the, on the cheeky side, but um, it really is an interesting book about Marcus Aurelius uh, and uh, and how he applied Stoic philosophy throughout his, his life and his reign. So that's a that's a really good modern reading. Uh, if you're a little bit more ambitious, I highly recommend um, um, uh, A New Stoicism by Larry Baker, Lawrence Baker. Uh, this is a somewhat technical book. Um, but it is the most comprehensive attempt that I know of uh, of updating Stoicism for the 21st century. And uh, Larry, who died recently, was a wonderful scholar. He was a practicing uh, Stoic as well. Uh, he, um, his life was unbelievable. I mean, he got hit by 
triple polio when he was young, and which crippled him from his entire life. And yet he managed to become a, uh, you know, an academic, um, well-respected academic, writing books. Uh, he, uh, there, are, there are stories about him, like for instance, um, he learned since he since he um, he had lost control of his uh, of his arms and and um, and hands. He actually learned how to correct to grade uh, students' papers by using his foot. Um, so this this was before, of course, modern computers. And then later on, he moved to a sort of voice recognition software. So the guy was amazing in terms of sort of just personally. But how uh, a new stoicism is a really comprehensive attempt to uh, update stoicism to the 21st century. Unfortunately, as I said, it's not very easy to read. Um, and if people are interested, they can go on my previous blog, uh, which is called howtobeastoic.org, and they'll find a chapter-by-chapter chapter summary and commentary of Larry's book, which was approved by Larry himself. I mean, I, before publishing every uh, every entry, I actually sent it to him for corrections and suggestions and stuff like that. So that's a that's a nice little introduction. But the book itself is definitely worth uh, wading through if um, uh, if you're not afraid of a little bit of technical philosophy. Very cool. Well, thank you for those recommendations. So just a couple more questions before we wrap up, and I'm really anxious to hear your answer to this. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Socrates, um, because he was a good drinker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just not Hemlock. Yeah, uh, yeah not the Hemlock part. Um, you know, there's, the, there's this wonderful uh, dialogue, platonic dialogue called the Symposium, uh, which was essentially a drinking party. Uh, in ancient Greece, where people, however, did uh, talk philosophy or, or literature or, or history or you know whatever was interesting, and uh, the the Platonic dialogue features Socrates um, and uh, one of his students, friends, and allegedly former lover uh, Alcibiades, who, who later became a general uh, in uh, in Athens and had an incredible life of, uh, on his own. He was, you know, arguably partly responsible, at least, for the defeat of Athens in the, in the Peloponnesian War. But um, the, the symposium is really uh, a really interesting sort of look at, at how the ancient Greeks did this kind of stuff. And Socrates there plays a major role and you know, entertains people. He's, he's very much uh, entertaining. He's very much, he's, he's very funny. He's also very uh, profound. Uh, and apparently he could, he could hold his wine uh, far better than anybody else. The, the, the dialogue ends... Uh, with every other guest going home and Socrates just walks out and goes to the Agora to do what he did every day Talk to other people about philosophy uh, Even though they've been drinking all night. So I think that having uh, you know participating in a symposium with um, With Socrates will be a lot of fun. That's great news So what you're basically saying is if I want to strive to be like Socrates I can drink a lot of red wine and talk to people about philosophy Yeah, but you you have to be able to hold it that Socrates did. So, you know, that, that remains to be seen. Awesome. So what are your daily non-negotiables? Things that no matter what will always be done? Uh, that's a good question. I, I try actually not to have non-negotiables because, you know, life is complicated and, and, and varied. And you might you might need to give up um, uh, even the stuff that is uh, most uh, apparently non-negotiable. But I suppose the first and, and most predictable is my morning espresso. The very first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I go, you know, I don't even go to the bathroom first. I go to the kitchen, put up the put up the espresso machine on, and then go to the bathroom. 
So that is that would qualify probably as a non-negotiable. Um, if we're talking about a little more serious things, some reading. I mean, there is not a single day that where I don't do some reading, uh, whether whether it be uh, the Stoics or it be philosophy or it be science or it be uh, you know um, anything else that I think it's interesting. Uh, I think reading is is an integral part of my life. I just don't. There's not a day passes uh, that I don't do that. Awesome. Where should people go to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? I know you and Gregory Lopez have the new book, a handbook for new Stoics. Uh, well, there's one website that actually has everything that I have that I put out, um, and that's called um, uh, um, StoicButNotASage.net. Um, so it. if you go there, it, uh, you'll find everything from from my you know entries into my blog to my books, my online uh, all other online activities so it's a stoic but not sage.net okay and are you active on social media i'm very active on social media um i am my particularly on twitter my handle is mpilucci m-p-i-g-l-i-u-c-c-i uh there i post uh, all sorts of things that either uh, i find interesting or that i publish um i am less active on facebook uh, um but I do have a regular presence on the major uh, Stoicism group, uh, which is actually uh, facilitated by Don Robertson, uh, one of the others that I mentioned earlier. And I, I'm there pretty much every day. Awesome. Do you have a favorite Stoic quote that you would like to leave with my listeners? Yeah, I, I have a number. The, the reason I'm hesitating is because I have a number. Um, but, um, but one of my favorite recently is from Epictetus, uh, and it's in the Discourses, and it says... Um, uh, uh, be careful at what uh, price you sell you sell your soul, but for God's sake, don't sell it cheap. Which is a um, uh, suggestion that we should try to do our best. We're not perfect. So everybody's going to sell their soul at some point. There will be a point where you're going to break. Um, the the notion, unless you're a sage, of course. Um, so the notion is, it's okay. You know, we all have a breaking point. Just make sure your breaking point is as high as possible. It's the best possibly do awesome well thank you so much for coming on my show massimo this was really a privilege it was a lot of fun thank you for having me all right everybody thank you so much for listening make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on itunes and leaving me a review following me on social media at prime philosophy and just by spreading the word jacoba